everyone. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Peculiar Stories and Far Out Tales. I'm Anna Howington. And I am Kim Yellen. And we are just going to jump right in. Um, So today I'm going to talk about a woman named uh, Sarah Emma Edmonds. Have you ever heard of her before? Never heard of her. So I heard about her name because in my classic trying to summarize a book, um, I just read this book, (laughs) this really awesome book. It's called Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy. It's by Karen Abbott. It is on Audible. So check out our Audible affiliate. Interesting. Audibletrial.com slash peculiar. And it was a very good book. And it was about four different women that uh, worked in different capacities during the Civil War. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. But I found that Sarah Emma Edmonds was kind of the most interesting. So her story starts uh, way back in Canada in my kind of my motherland (laughs) in New Brunswick. So in the east, way, way, way in the east. Um, She was born in 1841. Her father was pretty rough, as with, I think, most, it seems like most farming families. He really wanted a son. He had a whole bunch of girls. He had one son who had epilepsy. And so he was not really, like, living his best life and kind of took it out on his kids is what it sounds like. Eh, What a piece of shit. Yeah, not, maybe not the best guy. So at about the age of 15, 15, 16, um, Sarah was facing a uh, an arranged marriage and this kind of continued abuse and, and not a great life. So she decided to run away in the classic, like, stand up for yourself style. Nice. Uh, she ran away and she ran away to the uh, the big town of Moncton, New Brunswick. Never heard of it. <laughs> no, even now I've heard of it, but I think that's just because because I know a little bit about Canada. Moncton, even now, is Moncton's the largest city, and I looked it up. It's the largest city in New Brunswick and has like eighty five thousand people. So, oh like, wow, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of New Brun. New Brunswick is beautiful. Anybody that's listening, New Brunswick is beautiful. Go yeah. visit it if you're looking for like nature, you know, outdoorsy life. But it definitely is not like. A metropolis, I would say. Yeah. Um, and, and it isn't even now. So I can't imagine what it was like in, in the 1850s. So she ran away to Moncton and obviously she would have to get a job. So she started looking around for jobs. And as she was trying to look for jobs, she started to adopt a new identity. So what she found was okay. that um, it was really difficult in that time for a woman to be traveling around by herself. So the easiest thing for her to do was to disguise herself as a man. Okay. And so her new identity was um, a man named Franklin or Frank Thompson. Okay. And she started to kind of adopt that identity. So um, really quickly, I do also want to say just just to kind of put it out there, everything that I read um, said that this was very much like a disguise. It wasn't her gender identity. Right. Yeah. I, I don't want to sound like I'm misgendering her, but I, I will continue to say her um, just because because, okay. like I said, it, it was just kind of something that she put on in a disguise. And, she was doing it to get by in that, right. you know, era. So um, she took on this identity as Frank Thompson um, and she's became a Bible salesman. It sounds like she kind of like went at it full bore, like that she was a really good Bible salesman <laughs> rolling around Moncton. Um, She was still quite nervous about getting found by her father. So at some point she moved to Connecticut and continued to be a Bible salesman there. Okay. In in the day when you could just walk across the border, I guess. So she continued to live her life as Frank. Now, how old is she here when she gets to Connecticut? So it sounds like it was 1861. So I would guess so. It sounds like she's 20 because she was born in 1841. So... 
And she's been selling Bibles for a couple years already. Right, right, yes. Okay. Been kind of assuming this identity as a man and selling Bibles and, and really, it sounds like really living her life. Like, it sounds like she was a pretty successful Bible salesman. Like, she was she was doing her thing, oh, wow. for sure. Yeah, so. Look, the Bible sells itself, all right? It was, right. like, Protestant <laughs> area. Like, they, they couldn't get enough of them. <laughs> yes, yeah, you need all the Bibles you can get. So in 1861 was also the time that the Civil War started to break out. And uh, President Lincoln called for 75,000 volunteers to join the Union Army. And even though she was a woman, even though she was Canadian, she felt this really deep desire to serve the United States. She also was was very mm-hmm. behind what the Union stood for. Like she she was a, a big proponent of that, too. So at some point, she kind of worked her way to Michigan and she went to a recruitment office. Recruitment offices were super busy at the time. She was quite nervous. Some of her like diary writings and her memoirs and everything talked about how nervous she was that that she was told that part of the recruitment process was that you'd like get stripped naked and they would like look you over and make sure that you had all your appendages and that everything worked. And so she was really nervous about that. But she still went to the recruitment office in Michigan and the recruitment office was really busy and apparently didn't have time to do a full like look it over. So she was drafted and or she was enlisted into the army. So she was enlisted into the 2nd Michigan Infantry on April 25th, 1861. Okay. And she started working as a field nurse, as as a male field nurse. Okay. She was involved in a whole bunch of uh, field hospitals. She was helping the sick. She also helped out in Washington with um, more new recruits. Mm-hmm. It was also very hot. And so she was helping with a lot of heat injuries. And typhoid was also an issue. So there were a lot of things that she was kind of helping with as this kind of fledgling army was getting started. Um, mm-hmm. I do also want to point out that kind of our modern... Um, Ideas of the military was certainly not around during the Civil War. These were definitely volunteers, and they were kind of just people that stepped up and and helped where they could. So there were some mishaps, mm-hmm. and so that was another reason that they needed to have a pretty strong field hospital and help those people out. So hmm. on July 15th of 1861, she got her first marching orders to go to Bull Run. The Union Army did not win that battle, mm-hmm. um, and so they, there were people that were retreating, and so she was helping with with that kind of part of it. She was giving out water. She was helping people that were dehydrated and and kind of trying to support the Union Army in that sense. The 2nd Infantry, which again was her, the 2nd Michigan Infantry, which was her regiment, helped out with the Peninsula Campaign, which um, for all of you Civil War buffs, We'll know that the, um, this is from Wikipedia, I'm very sorry. (laughs) The uh, Peninsula Campaign was part of the Union's attempt to capture the Confederate capital of Richmond by moving up the Virginia Peninsula rather than coming over the land in D.C. After that, um, she was involved in some other battles. Um, There was the Battle of the Second Manassas, um, or it's also called the Second Bull Run, was on August 29th, 1962. Um, then she started her work acting as a courier, so like a mail, a person that delivered mail around to different, um, different And this regiments. whole time, nobody's figured out. No, no. And there wow. wasn't even like, it didn't really seem like there was any even like suspicion. Like it, it mm. there were sometimes, there was one story. The thing about this whole thing, I was going to get into it later, but the thing about this whole thing is that all of it is pretty much based on her memoirs. 
Okay. And a lot of her memoirs are very, like, romanticized. And there's a lot of things that, like, <laughs> historians are like, no, she couldn't have been in two places at once. So it's hard to tell sometimes. She is the star of her own story. <laughs> right. Which I feel like we all should be, right? <laughs> I mean, she clearly has, like... I mean, she ran away from home. She's living this life as, as a, you know, undercover. And, I mean, she clearly, like, thinks in very big terms. So right. I'm not surprised she had some delusion of grandeur. I mean, like, that's the kind of personality you're going to get with a, with a lady like that, I think. <laughs> right. A hundred percent. Like, she was like, I, I've always, my, the, the kind of, um, saying in my family is that you better have a good story like you need to have a good story <laughs> like the truth is kind of whatever like as long as you can tell the good story so I think she was definitely in that kind of like frame of mind yeah. so the things that we've talked about so far are the things that are can kind of be proven like those are the things that we know for sure um, and we're starting to kind of get into um, the part that that might you know I don't, I don't know but to your point, one of the things in her memoir was that she was talking about um, a friend, this guy that she befriended, and I can't remember his name, but a guy that she befriended, and she eventually told him, she said in her memoirs that she told him that he was, he had written in his diary that, like, he was really confused and that he thought that he knew his friend and, like, he wanted his friend back and that he, it seemed like he was kind of bummed out that she was a, she was a she. I, I think she did. I mean, it sounds like she did kind of tell people. Yeah. I mean, if they found out that she was a woman, like she could be killed, she could be court-martialed. Like there were a whole bunch of things that like it would not be great if if the army found out that she was a woman. So hmm. so yeah, she worked pretty hard to to protect that. So then from there, um, her regiment was involved in some other battles, um, most notably from her own stories. Again, it's not super proven. And then she started working as a mail carrier. So she was was going around to a bunch of different places and delivering mail. Um, while she was doing that, um, at one point she was riding a horse um, or a mule, I guess. And the mule threw her into a ditch and she got really hurt. And oh, so no. one of the ways that she she had like heard about people getting caught because they got hurt like if people couldn't I mean if you're examining somebody or if somebody's hurt then obviously you're going to find out pretty quick if they're a woman oh so she wasn't the only one that was doing this no no actually there were records let me see if I can get to my notes there were records of there's a pretty wide range but apparently there was somewhere between 250 and 750 women who were serving as men during the civil war is kind of the, like, loose estimate. They needed us, all right? Yeah. And we knew that. They didn't know that. But we were like, if we don't, like, step up, they're going to lose this war. Because right. you just... <laughs> I mean, when you need a certain number of people, like, yeah. I mean, women are people, too. I know that's shocking to 1850s people, but, like, you know... <laughs> Hey, you know what? It's shocking to some 2021 people, too. That's, that's true, yes. But hopefully it's moved a little bit more in this direction. Yeah, so there, I mean, there were a chunk of women. Like like I said, uh, 250 and 750 is a pretty wide range. But because of uh, modesty standards and because of kind of how things weren't super sanitary at the time, um, soldiers mm -hmm. normally slept in their clothes. They didn't bathe a whole lot. Hmm. Um, they could kind of easily pass from it. And, and then kind of to your point too, there were a lot of young boys that were serving. So like even the facial hair wouldn't have been a like 
a giveaway mm-hmm. to anybody. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, there there were definitely other women that were serving. She was not alone in this. Um, mm-hmm. And she even tells, I'm kind of jumping around a lot, but she did tell a story in, again, I mean, I feel like this whole story should have like allegedly in front of it. But <laughs> Mine uh, too when we get to it. Yeah. So <laughs> trust me, yours isn't that far-fetched right now. <laughs> okay. Apparently at the Battle of Antietam, they were bearing a soldier, like she was working again as a nurse, and they were bearing a soldier, and on her deathbed, uh, she confessed to being a woman. Hmm. There were a lot of things, like, in this. I read the her memoir a little bit, and a lot of it just seemed, like, very convenient, like, very, you know, there's yeah. always that character that's, like, a warning to the main character or whatever. Yeah, like, yeah. I felt, it felt very, like... Look, she was supposed to be a novelist. She ended up a soldier. You can't blame her. <laughs> yeah, it happens. It happens. Anyway, so she got this injury, and she eventually recovered. She went to a private hospital, and she recovered. Um, She recovered in enough time to come back for the Battle of Fredericksburg. Um, Again, she was working as an orderly. She was, like, running back and forth and delivering messages. Um, Apparently, that battle was just a big, like, mishigash, like a bunch of mud. They called it the Mud March. Like, it was all rainy, and, and things were not working out great. And because of this battle, this man named General Ambrose Burnside, who I feel like people are going to think I should know who that is. I don't know who that is. But he apparently, like, resigned because of this or was taken off of command kind of because Mm. of this battle that it was just a big mess. Look, it's not his fault it rained, okay? No, no. he can't control the weather. (laughs) No, no. No. But I I think that it was a little, yeah, it's just kind of I don't know Civil War history. I'm just just standing up for whoever I can. (laughs) Right, yeah. Just find a person and latch on him. But I think it was, I think beyond that. (laughs) Story of my life. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I think beyond that, it was just, even without the rain, it was kind of a mess. So after this, two things happened that kind of propelled Sarah into her life as a spy. The first was that her, she had a friend um, named James Varney, and he was killed like while he was just kind of on patrol. And then there was another spy, a Union spy who was captured by the Confederates and then killed in a firing squad. So there was an opening. So she decided to, I don't know, apply. I don't know what how one becomes wow. a, a spy. You know what? She, this bitch does not have good risk assessment. No. Like, <laughs> that no. part of her brain is missing. Yes. <laughs> You're like, let me double down on the danger. Well, I think she was, like, super into, like, adventure, too. Like, she was just, like, always looking for, like, the next the next adventure, like, the next hill. She's, like, an adrenaline of... junkie. <laughs> yeah. Like, I just, yeah, like you said, just, like, doesn't have that filter of, like, maybe this is a little dangerous. So, um, according to her memoirs, allegedly, she crossed enemy lines 11 different times. I do want to say that there was no mention in any official record of her being a spy. However, it should be noted <laughs> that that's not really something that you would put in somebody's record. Like, I feel like yeah, some kind of anonymity about that. But she allegedly crossed enemy lines 11 different times. Um, one of her, like, disguises was that she covered herself in black paint and kind of went like blackface a little bit. Oh, no. Um, to, yeah, to um, because I think that even that was like, if they wouldn't notice a woman, they particularly wouldn't notice a black person. Like, So she went as a black man yeah. into the Confederate army? She, she went in disguised as, it was called Contraband, who was a former slave who walked around and was allowed to kind of be in the Confederacy. She wore a wig. She covered herself in silver nitrate to color her skin. And she decided to name herself Cuff. 
Now, what her. did she accomplish with this? Well, so from that, so on her mission, it says that she gathered information from the Richmond area. Um, she could see where their fortifications were. She, yeah, she also found out that some of the Confederate um, weapons were not real weapons. Like they were just logs painted like cannons. So that was one of the things that she found out. Oh, so she wow. took all of, yeah. So she did find some information. Um, the next time she went into into the Confederacy, she was dressed as an Irish peddler, a woman named Bridget. So just to like keep everything straight, she was a woman named Sarah who was disguised as a man named Frank who is now disguised as a woman named Bridget. Okay. So <laughs> one of the things that she found from there was apparently she was able to get all the way into a Confederate camp. And when she was working there, she found some official documents that were in the pocket of a Confederate officer. She, yeah, just just again, kind of like, okay, that's a really yeah. good story. But she continued her spying. Um, she wrote in her memoir that she would dress as a Confederate soldier and that she shot her Confederate, uh, the Confederate commander in the face and then like ran back to the Union. Again, okay. very like romanticized stuff. Yeah. Sure. Why not? You know yeah. what? I'm here for it. <laughs> yeah. um, at some point along the way, she contracted malaria. She developed the symptoms of malaria. And again, she couldn't just like go to a doctor, go to a war doctor. So she asked to be furloughed. Like she asked to be let go for a little bit. Um, but it was denied for some reason. And this is kind of where her account diverges like that that it again there's there's official record of it hmm. the official record is that this frank thompson who was she was kind of her alter ego was a deserter that he just like left so i could see how those were kind of kind of similar stories just depending on huh. on what paperwork you have yeah so she she did end up going to Washington um, and went to a private hospital where, like, nobody knew that she was a soldier. Um, hmm. She recovered enough to return to service. But because of the desertion charge, because now this Frank Thompson was, like, wanted for being a deserter, um, hmm. she couldn't, like, go back to the front lines and she couldn't go back and serve like she wanted to. So she made up Frank Thompson. Can't she just make up, like, Joe yeah. Schmo? Like, I mean, like, yeah. uh, it's it's already a bullshit individual. Like, how much can they really find out back then? Like, I, I feel like you could just go somewhere and be like, my name's Edgar Dublin. And they'll be like, all right, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if she was like you said, she was able to just make up this person. Like, it doesn't sound like there's like social security numbers or they're mm -hmm. <laughs> like tracking anybody. Yeah, that was a good point. I, I don't know why she decided not to do that. Maybe she had kind of had enough to. Um, but she instead turned to as a woman now. She started to work in a hospital and she would work with returning soldiers and help out mm -hmm. in in the hospitals, not on the front lines. So, again, kind of returning to nursing and, and helping out with that. Hmm. Um, her memoir, which we've talked about, was originally called Unsexed or the Female Soldier, but then it was reprinted and it was called Nurse and Spy of the Union Army. It's a, hmm. a bit, as we've talked about, a bit, uh, you gotta, you gotta kind of take it for what it is. Like it might just be a, a <laughs> bit of a fanciful story, but the, all of the proceeds from that book went to help soldiers like she didn't it wasn't for like financial gain really like it oh. was just kind of yeah so look she just did it for the glory and you got to respect right. that right you got to respect uh, that <laughs> yeah what is that called in like the clout or something what is that called yeah on, like, tiktok or instagram or whatever oh i have no idea oh <laughs> i think it's i think they they like talk about that we're like oh i'm doing it for the clout 
or whatever. I don't know. But anyway, so she yeah, so she donated all of the proceeds from the book to um, to the Union soldiers. Um, one of the things that we do know is that in 1867, she married a man named Linus Seeley, um, who was a Canadian mechanic. She found another Canadian because of our Canadian dar. We can just like pick him out in a room. And they kind of moved around a whole bunch and they eventually settled in Texas, like some other Canadians I know that just kind of travel <laughs> around and then stand up in Texas. They did have children together, but none of them survived through um, past infancy. So they ended up adopting two kids. Oh. Um, there was a reunion of uh, the 2nd Michigan Infantry in 1876, and she attended as a woman. And everyone was like, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. But they <laughs> apparently were, like, all for it. Like, Okay, now that I don't know if I believe. Yeah. But they did, like, they did kind of rally around her, and they helped her to get, because she had this, because this Frank Thompson had this deserter charge on him. He wasn't eligible for a pension. So um, she had all of these injuries that were, like, still like these like nagging injuries so the rest of the veterans i guess from the second michigan infantry kind of rallied around her and they helped her get rid of they said it was an eight-year fight to get rid of the desertion charge and then be able to get her her pension which turned out to be 12 dollars a month i didn't look up what that was in today dollars but it doesn't sound like a lot but i'm sure that it helped yeah um she was admitted into, it's called the Grand Army of the Republic, which was a Civil War veterans organization. She's the only woman to do so. Oh, wow. Yeah. On September 5th, 1898, she passed away um, from malaria. Oh, it eventually got her, huh? Yeah. That yeah. malaria you know, <laughs> came back around. Yep. Can't run away from malaria. <laughs> um, and she uh, she was originally buried in Laporte, Texas, which is very close to where I am. And she was 58, so not that old. Um, and ended up being, um, later she was like, what is that called? Like reburied, like re-interned in the Washington Cemetery in Houston, Texas. Oh, wow. So she's, I should go check check it out at some point. I feel like, I don't know where the Washington Cemetery is, but it can't be too far away. Um we already talked about this, about how there were other women that that served in the military. Um, there were the names of a couple other women. There was one that um, that I found kind of interesting was a man named Albert DJ Cashiers, and he had enlisted in 1862. And for for everything that I read, he he was living as a man, but he mm. was never found out until 1913. When he was living in kind of an old folks home in Illinois, and then a surgeon discovered that he was female and he died two years later in an insane asylum. And his, oh, yeah, so no. it was kind of, it's kind of super sad. So um, there are affidavits and there's files that talk about other, like I said, other women that tried to join, even though the, um, there was a point when somebody wrote to uh, like the Department of War. And asked, like, about these females that were serving as men in the military. And apparently they got a reply back. And it said, quote, I have the honor to inform you that no official record has been found in the War Department showing significantly that any woman was ever enlisted in the military service of the United States as a member of any organization of the regular or volunteer army at any time during the period of the Civil War. Now, um, whoever wrote that knew that they were full of shit when they were writing right. it. You can just yes. tell with the way that it's phrased. They're like, we're 100 percent certain yes. <laughs> it could never happen here. Oh, yeah. God. There were women that were found and they got their discharge papers and they were marked as sexually incompatible. Um, so, I mean, it's it's all just like you said, it's all this kind of horse shit to say that, like, 
no women ever snuck through. It's so and, crazy. Yeah. So yeah. that's the story of Sarah Emma Edmonds. Again, you can read about her in Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy by Karen Abbott, audibletrial.com slash peculiar. And um, her and then three other women that served in different capacities in the Civil War. Awesome. There you go. Oh, and her memoir is free on the internet. So if you want to check it out <laughs> um, and kind of read for yourself, go for it. That is not on Audible, but you can check it out. I love that. What a fascinating yeah. story. Yeah. Like, I mean, I feel like it's like, like you said, it's like these people that like are like so in it for like adventure and mm-hmm. like just kind of willing to to do whatever it takes. There was a quote from Sarah Emma Edmonds that says, I'm naturally fond of adventure, a little ambitious and a good deal romantic. But patriotism was the true secret to my success. So she was like she was really like in it for America when like she wasn't American, like which I feel like is oftentimes the case. Yeah, but maybe she was also in it because she saw the injustice, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. No, she. everything that I read said that she was like a staunch unionist. Like she was like behind it. Like she totally supported um, supported the goals and the ambitions of, of the union in the Civil War. So she wanted to she wanted to help out. And so she didn't care that she was like, quote, the wrong sex or the wrong nationality or the wrong, you know, she just wanted to do it. So good for her. Yeah. Yay, Sarah. Yay, Sarah. Thanks, Sarah. Yep. Thank you. Yeah, that was awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thanks. Anytime. (laughs) All right. So the story I'm going to tell today is from my hood, the Hudson River Valley. And I think I mentioned this once before in another episode. But today, I'm going to give you the full story, the full rundown of the Hudson Valley UFO sightings. Ooh. A.K.A. the Westchester Boomerang. Wow. I've never heard of it. I just love that name, Westchester Boomerang. It's a good, you've got to have a good name. Yeah. Um, so a little bit about the Hudson Valley. Uh, we're about 30 to 40 miles north of New York City, and it's made up of kind of a bunch of like sleepy, very New Englandy towns. Like there's just a whole string of them along the Hudson River, and that's kind of considered the Hudson River Valley. And you've got the east side that's all these like beautiful rolling hills, and then on the west side you have the Palisades, which are these like gorgeous granite cliffs that just kind of drop off into the Hudson. It's a really beautiful area. And it's really quiet. You know, a lot of families. It's mostly like upper middle class, very well educated, uh, Mm -hmm. cosmopolitan population. Um, It's considered a bedroom community, which means that almost everyone that lives here commutes into the city for work. So you're essentially getting a bunch of New Yorkers who just like live in the suburbs. And if you know anything about New Yorkers and not to like stereotype us at all, but we're not ones to really, like, believe bullshit. Right. Yes. That's yeah. why it was so surprising when in the early 1980s, there were thousands of UFO sightings in the Hudson mm. Valley. Like, over 5,000 people reported seeing these UFOs. Wow. Those UFO sightings are, like, the ones that I'm like, oh, because, like, I mean, if it's yeah. just, like, one person out in the middle of nowhere and, you know, whatever— but like when it's a bunch of people, I'm like, oh my god! No, what does it, it mean? 
ton of people. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was really well known, too, at the time that they were happening. It was getting reported in all these local uh, newspapers and on the radio. There were television spots on it. Like, everybody knew it was happening. And the very first sighting uh, actually happened on New Year's Eve in 1981. And there's an Unsolved Mysteries episode from the 90s. Did you watch it? <laughs> yeah, it's really good. And it's very 90s. It's just, yes. I don't know. <laughs> I love I, it. Oh you my can God. see it on YouTube. It's it's great. So what happened was the first sighting on New Year's Eve, it was seen by this retired police officer in Kent, New York. Uh, he initially thought that he was just observing an airplane. But the craft passed over his home, and he realized that it was moving way too slowly to be an airplane, and also that it was, like, completely quiet. So it was making no noise. It was a Prius. It was a Prius UFO. Yeah, exactly. And it was was huge. Most of the reports, they um, report it being this, like, V-shape, which is where it gets that boomerang nickname from. Mm. They report it being... Very slow moving, completely silent, and enormous. People said that it was the size of like a football field or two football fields. They said it was just huge. Wow. And so this retired police officer, he described it as having red, green, and white lights attached to the bottom. And it was just this like large, solid structure. Uh, It passes over his home. And that same night on Interstate 84, which is right by where this retired police officer saw the craft at first, a bunch of motorists saw the craft as well. And they all pulled over onto the side of the road to watch this thing pass by. There's a lot of um, times that these sightings caused these huge traffic jams because people just like couldn't believe what they were seeing. So they just like stopped in the middle of the highway. And this was the first time that happened. And one of the guys was this guy, Edwin Hansen, who uh, reported seeing the craft. And he said that he believed the UFO had communicated with him telepathically. Okay, now let's put a little asterisk here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying that I believe that this UFO communicated with him telepathically. Mm -hmm. But... But. (laughs) He is not the only one that said this. Several other people thought that, like, the craft was communicating with them. Wow. Oh, oh. Um, Wasn't it like a simpler time, like back in, when When did you say this was? The 90s? The early early 1980s. The early 1980s. Literally even better. Like, I feel like now it'd be like, no, there's no pictures. Like, go away. Like, Yeah, but yeah. like, also, okay, somebody did get a video of it, and I'll talk about that in just a little bit. But oh, okay. also, I kind of feel like it, when you see something that you can't explain, mm-hmm. like, I feel like, your mind might go a little haywire. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Totally. So yeah. I think that they really do believe that it communicated with them. I just don't know if it actually did or not, because obviously I'm not in their head. But it's interesting that he was not the only one that said this. So the people that reported communicating with the craft mostly said it had to do with the way that they felt about the craft. And if they mm. wanted to see it, the craft would move towards them. And if they got scared, the craft would move away. Ooh, ooh! I love it. That's awesome. <laughs> Isn't that so crazy? Yeah. Um, okay, so later, just like a month later, uh, well, more than a month, almost two months later, on February 26, 1982, Monique O'Driscoll, who she worked at a nearby healthcare facility, um, and she was actually really reluctant to talk about this sighting at first until she 
found out that so many other people had saw it because she didn't want anybody to think she was crazy. And she also thought that this craft communicated with her telepathically. She was driving down the road with her 17-year-old daughter through these, like, country roads when she saw this enormous craft just pass over their car. So her and her daughter start to follow it to see where it goes. And they follow it for a while, for several miles, and then the craft just stops over a lake. So over this, like, frozen pond. It's the middle of winter, and she just watches it hover there. And again, she says that she feels like it was communicating with her telepathically, and, like, when she wanted to see it, it moved closer. When she got scared, it moved away. And then eventually it started to float off where she couldn't see it anymore. And then... What a... But she's so much braver than I am. I would... If I... If, if you and I were together and we saw something like that and you were like, I'm following that, I'd be like, let me out of the car. Like, Are I'm you not- kidding me? You wouldn't follow oh. it with me? Come no, on. No. Come on. Oh, my God. I might, if you said you might go, I might go just like make sure. I don't know. What I would I could lock do. the doors and step oh. on the gas. I am not going by myself, but I am going. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I wouldn't let you go by yourself, but I would not no, want I'd be I wouldn't big, force you with it. Big scary things in the sky. I'm, I'm not like, <laughs> where's that going? I'd be like, oh, Lord. No know yeah so she described it also in a very similar way she said it was this huge structure about 200 300 feet wide uh she said it was covered in red blue and amber lights and that the bottom of the craft looked like the underside of a bridge with all these like crisscrossing metal beams so yeah it was it was really really crazy she got like a good look too like to see like that type of stuff like oh Yeah, and I mean, I don't know how much credence you want to give the telepathic stuff, but, like, if you've ever been to Westchester or if you live in Westchester, these are very straight-laced people. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, it's just—I just—I don't know. To have so many people saying that is just kind of crazy. Um, Now, okay, so on that same night that Monique saw the craft, again, in Kent, New York, in Carmel, New York, and in Danbury— police stations started to receive a flood of calls about the UFO. So, like, 911 is ringing off the hook. People are like, there's this crazy thing in the sky. We don't know what it is, you know, and all these police officers are like, we don't know what it is either. You know, people are trying to figure out what's going on. And this happens over and over again. There's, like, all these calls to, like, emergency services being like, is there an invasion? Like, what what the fuck is going on? Like, War of the Worlds or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and they interview all these police officers, too. Like, it's not bullshit. Like, I just can't imagine that it would be such a mass hallucination of this thing, you know? Right, right. Yeah, in so many different areas, too. Like, it's not, like, this one party where, like, everyone was stoned out of their mind seeing some spaceship. Like, it's, exactly. like, from so many different places and, exactly. like, different people and, oh, oh. That's I know. Awesome. It was crazy. I was a little stoned out of my mind when I was researching this. I have <laughs> Good. The best movie. <laughs> this was uh i got way down this rabbit hole <laughs> it yep, was yep. super fun i don't yep. do that that often but i felt like the <laughs> felt like the occasion called for it yes yeah and it was a blast um okay anyway <laughs> and it was so, <laughs> on that same night that monique saw the craft like i said all these police stations started getting all this calls in or whatever and then on march 17th 1983 This is when things started to really ramp up. So we're a year later, and on this night, there are a ton of sightings. One of them is this guy, Dennis Sant. Uh, He's a county clerk. He's, like, the top county clerk for Putnam County. So this guy's, like, worked in government. Like, he's, you know, a responsible Mm -hmm. person. He's a father of five. 
he saw this large craft hovering over his house. And um, he described it very similar to everybody else, that it was silent, that it was huge, that it had all these different colored lights on it. And then it just kind of floated off into the distance. A few miles away on Interstate 84 again, traffic again screeched to a halt as the object floated over the highway. About 60 to 70 people got out of their cars to view the craft in the night sky. And yeah, it was the same thing. Like everybody just didn't know what they were looking at. So it just like stopped everybody in their tracks. Is the county clerk an elected position or are they like appointed to it? Oh, I have no idea. I mean, I don't, would you, I mean, you work in a government. What do you think it is? I, I, here, I think the county clerks are elected, which I feel like just lends like more credence to it is that like, they don't want to say something that's going to like make them seem crazy. Mm -hmm. Like, it just means that it's like, like, to me, it's like even more that like, he definitely saw something like, yeah, like, but I mean, you feel like even if it's not like, it still is a very high position that like, I feel like you don't want to sound like the crazy person that's seeing UFOs. Like, yeah, just. Like, to me, it's like he must have, like, really seen something that, like, really freaked him out enough yeah. to like, bring it up to, to someone. And they interview him on the Unsolved Mysteries episode. And, I mean, he doesn't sound like he's crazy. Yeah. You know? And, I mean, it's not like he, like, went off the rails after that and his life fell apart and all this. Stuff. You know what I mean? Like, these people, mm-hmm. like, they saw this crazy thing. And, like, how could that be the only crazy thing they ever saw? You know, if they were right. if they were really, like, and were, like, having hallucinations, right. then I don't know. Anyway. Um, One week later, on March 24th, Newcastle police officer Andy Sadoff was on patrol. She was parked on the side of a road. She was looking for speeding cars. And all of a sudden, she noticed these unusual lights in the sky. And so she saw that they started to approach her vehicle. And this large craft, again, same thing. It came into view. She described it a very similar way. Um, She said when it reached her patrol car, it stopped and hovered above her patrol car. And then she recalled that, like, the most astonishing thing was is that it was pretty low and that there was no noise. You know, like when there are planes, there's noise. And like to just like hover like that without a sound. She said it really kind of like, you know, it intrigued her. She was like, what is this thing? Yeah, that would make I feel like that would add this like even weirder level like that. That yeah. you're seeing something that, like, you've never seen before, but it's also not behaving in the way of anything that you've seen yeah. up to that point. Like, yeah. oh, that would be crazy. It's crazy, right? And so yeah. right as this thing is hovering over her car, she gets this call over the radio that people are reporting some strange object in the sky. And she's like, yeah, dude, I'm looking right at it, <laughs> you know? And so then the thing starts to float away, and she says that she follows it for a while, keeping it inside as long as she can until it kind of like floats off into the hills and she can't see it anymore. And then just 10 minutes later, about 10 miles away on the Taconic State Parkway in Millwood, which is, it's not, it's not that far from where she was, again, a group of motorists, they pull off the road, they see this craft and like a, a bunch of people are just like crowded on the side of this highway looking at it. One of those motorists was this guy, Ed Burns, and he's a computer engineer and a senior manager for IBM. So this guy's no slouch, you know? Yeah. He was there, and he described it, again, large triangle craft, making no noise. He said it looked like a flying city. Ooh. That night alone, there were like 12 reports in Newcastle. There were 20 reports in Millwood. Um, And as the craft moved up the Hudson Valley to Yorktown, 
the phones at the police station started just ringing off the hook in Yorktown. All these people were calling in reporting this UFO. Uh, the sightings continued through the spring and into the summer when every so often, every couple weeks, there would just be all of these sightings. And one of the things with a lot of UFO sightings is that a lot of times they're clustered around where there's a nuclear power plant or where there's nuclear weapons stored. And mm. right in the Hudson Valley, not far from where I am, is Indian Point. And Indian Point is a nuclear power station and it is one of the oldest ones in the United States. And on July 12th, people reported seeing the UFO in Peekskill, which is right beside where the the nuclear power plant is in Buchanan and Peekskill is right beside Buchanan. So it's they're practically like like all these towns are so small and they're just like right next to each other. Wow. So we're not far they're not far away from each other at all. The, hundreds of people reported it on that July 12th, seeing the UFO in that area. That's crazy that they're like all around I don't know. Like, I, like, want to make that, like, mean something. But, like, outside of, like, well, the aliens want to check out nuclear power. Like, I I feel like there's not, like, another rational reason for it to all be. Like, I feel like a lot of them, too, are at, just from my, like, very limited knowledge that, like, a lot of them are near naval bases or, pardon me, Air Force bases, too, which Mm -hmm. that I'm I'm like, oh, well, obviously, they're, like, testing things that we haven't seen before. Like, that has, like, a practical, like, Mm -hmm. that makes sense to me. But, like, that they're all around nuclear plants, like. The only thing, like, I can't make it make sense outside of, like, that there's something that wants to check out the nuclear power. They say that it's the reason that all these UFO sightings started to happen in, like, the 1940s is that once we as a human race understood what it meant to split an atom, we became more interesting to intergalactic species because we like evolved to a point where we could harness some kind of power that we hadn't been able to do before. So maybe they're just like coming and checking out what we're doing, being like, oh, great. So they've got this now. Well, we'll check on them in another million years when they have whatever, you know, (laughs) like. Right. right. uh, Like that's the only, that's the only like, like I can't make another explanation make sense. Like for something, like there's nothing in the air really for you know, you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. nothing really makes sense except for there is something and it's coming to check out what capabilities the world has. Oh, totally. You know, but. and I have to I have to say something here. OK, so there we don't get a lot of reviews and we got <laughs> we got one review a oh, couple no. weeks ago and they gave us a pretty good review. Look, I'm not hating it. Thank you so much for listening. Whoever you are, much love to you. But I mm-hmm. think maybe you misunderstood me. Because they said that they thought that I didn't believe in UFOs. Now, I'm not going to speak for you, Kim, but I wholeheartedly believe in UFOs. (laughs) Like, I am all about it. I totally believe it. So I don't know what made you think that I don't believe in UFOs, but... I really, really do. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I, I mean, it's not that I don't believe in them. I guess I just really want to look for the other explanation first. Like it, it, I feel like it's not that I don't believe that there's something, you know, out there or whatever, but it, it Mm -hmm. definitely is that I, I want there to be a practical reason first. Like, I'm always going to, I understand practical, practical isn't the right word, like a known reason first, you know, what is that looking for zebras in Central Park? Or yeah. Occam's razor, like look yeah. for the most like simple yeah. explanation. Like, so I, 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 I'm sorry if I, something I said got con- construed as that way. I'm not saying that I don't believe. Yeah, but 
Yeah, no. I mean, look, you're allowed to have your opinions. And (laughs) I mean, I'm going to try to convince you otherwise. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Tell, please. Like, I want to be convinced otherwise. Oh, so I I missed two sightings before the July 12th. There were actually two other sightings at Indian Point on June 14th and July 24th, 1984. And the July 12th was July 12th, 1984 in Pisco. So there was like this cluster of sightings right around that nuclear power plant in the summer of 1984. And there were a lot of them. So they were getting ready for my birthday. They just missed it by a year. That's what (laughs) the problem was. (laughs) Wrong wrong place. Wrong place, wrong time. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, we overshot it by a year. We got to come back. That's such a Leo thing to say. Yeah, I know. It's all about me, (laughs) obviously. (laughs) The aliens are looking for me. Oh, my God. That is such a... Never mind. (laughs) I tend to be so like, no, I'm not my star sign, whatever. But no, you're right. That is... (laughs) Sorry. Uh, anyway, for those who lived, like I said, back in the area, like these were well known. Like it was just accepted knowledge that these UFOs were just like hanging around that area. And, you know, of course, there were people that tried to explain it away with like weather balloons or there was this other popular theory that a group of stunt pilots flying out of the Stormville airport were responsible for all the hullabaloo. And, you know, it's true that after the reports started pouring in uh, for the first round of sightings, a few pilots in April of 1983 decided to try and recreate the lights as a hoax to kind of like, you know, prove that it could be done. And this really was unfortunate because it really muddied the waters of Mm -hmm. like whether it was people seeing this UFO or seeing these planes, in my opinion, in my opinion. Yeah. because it it didn't fool some people. Some people who had seen the what they said was the the boomerang also saw the planes, and they said that there was a big difference between the way the planes moved and the way the UFO moved. Mm. And one of them was that there was so much sound with the planes. Yeah, I bet. So the official explanation was that it wasn't a UFO. It was these ultralight airplanes that like would fly in these tight formations, but. These airplanes, they made like a sound that was very akin to like a lawnmower. They were very loud. And they also, yeah. they would bounce around in the breeze. And one of the nights that there were a lot of sightings on, there were wind gusts of up to like 30 miles an hour. Oh. And so this theory, I don't know. I don't think this theory really explains it all. Yeah. And additionally to that, two-thirds of the sightings happened on nights when the stunt pilots weren't even flying. So Uh how do you explain that? Like, you just can't. It's UFOs. That's how you explain it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Yeah. So. Cool. That's that's what I think. I think that they're real. I don't know if they communicated with people, but I'm not ruling it out. Yeah. But I think they were definitely here. Uh, So there's this great book. Well, okay. Let me take that back. There's this book (laughs) (laughs) called Night Siege, which is like the seminal research project on on this on this um, Mm -hmm. on these incidents. And it was written by two men. Uh, One of them was this guy, Dr. J. Allen Hynek. And that guy, he's like for real. Um, Mm -hmm. He died Uh, while the book was being written, which is really unfortunate for reasons I'll explain in a minute. But he was an expert, and he 
did a lot of work with the U.S. government. He worked for NASA's satellite tracking program, and for 20 years, he was a scientific consultant uh, to the United States Air Force in the investigation of UFO phenomenon. So he was, like, legit. This guy was, like, the UFO guy. And he would prove some of UFOs being real, and other ones he would be like, we just can't explain this. So he was very dry. He was very scientific. And the issue with that is, is that he got involved with this guy named... Philip and Brogno. And in Brogno, on the other hand, uh, was a con man. <laughs> um, he claimed to have all these credentials that he didn't actually have. and But he was, like, really big in the UFO community. So they got together, and maybe Hynek didn't know that Imbrogno was a liar, and they started writing this book together. It was towards the end of um, Hynek's life. And then he died halfway through writing the book. And Imbrogno went on to finish the book. So, like, you can't—I don't know how much you can trust everything in that book because one of the people was such an obvious, like, liar about so much of his other things in his life. But a lot of the book is actually really dry, and it does include a lot of accounts that can be verified— so, yeah. That's how you know it's a very—the drier the book, the the more, like, yeah. serious you can take the yeah. content. The reason yeah. why I didn't read it is because the Goodreads review that I thought was <laughs> hilarious, it said, a tedious collection of anecdotal evidence. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> that's that's the like, type of scientific research I want. Like, <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. I was like, oh, gosh. Um, and I did read a little bit of it, and it is super mm-hmm. dry. But it's a lot of just, like, they just talk to people who saw it, you know? Yeah. And it's, yep. that's all it is. It's a lot of, like, it was at these coordinates at this time. And I wish there was more to the story than that. I mean, I think seeing a UFO is, is a pretty fascinating story as it is. Mm-hmm. But other than that, like, nobody really can explain it. Like, I just wonder what other type of, like, like uh stuff you would expect except for anecdotal like it seems like anything doing with like like as if there's going to be actual research that's able to be done like obviously it's all just going to be stories Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. there's i mean it's not like roswell it's not like there's a crash or something like there's nothing to study except for people's stories and people's explanations Mm -hmm. of things and and there was one guy that got a video of one of the sightings Mm. and he also took a video of the stunt pilots as well. Oh. The problem is, is it's like the nineteen early 1980s, so it's all really grainy. Yeah. yeah. So you can't really <laughs> see a difference. And I still feel like even today, like the way our phones like record the night sky, mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's kind of yeah. like not that great. Like they really need to come up with some new technology for that. Yeah. How are we supposed to record our UFOs? Exactly. Get your night vision going. Exactly. So, I mean, I don't know. You can watch those videos. I didn't gain a lot from watching those videos. I I do see how they look different, but um, it's just it just looks like lights in the sky. Like you can't really tell a difference. But you know, I wish I wish somebody who had seen it closer up had gotten a video. But they didn't have phones back then, and that's such a yeah. shame. Yeah. But when was the last like sighting? You said it was uh, I early think it was 90s? like. The last, well, that's the thing. I mean, people see UFOs all the time. Right, yeah. The cluster of sightings happened, like, New Year's Eve 1981 to the summer of 1984. Okay. That's when the most of them happened. But, I mean, I don't know. Like, people see UFOs 
I mean, I'm sure there's somebody mm-hmm. that's seen a UFO yesterday or thinks they did. Right. But this right. was just yeah. like there were so many people and it was like causing like traffic jams and, and it was causing like it was jamming up emergency service lines, you know, like so that's why mm-hmm. it was such a such a phenomenon. Yeah, that they were all grouped together. Wow. That's cool. Mm-hmm. That it's like right in your backyard, like you said. I know. Cool. It really is. I mean, I can yeah. like literally see from the front of my house, like some places where it would have been over the Hudson River. Yeah. I just wish I could see one someday. That's all I want in life. <laughs> I just want to see a UFO. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> you want to do our rundown? Sure. Do you want me to go first? Yes. Um. So uh, the other day... I, I was talking to Anna a little bit before we started, but I'm there's a lot of stuff going on in my life right now. And there's some some good stuff and there's some like stuff to think about and there's some not great stuff. And there's just a lot going on right now. And I haven't talked to a whole lot of people about it just because I I don't know. I don't think that I'm a particularly like secretive person. I just feel like it's just not something to like talk to everybody about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was texting with another friend. And he kind of asked. And so I told him like some of the stuff that was going on. And it was literally the first time that I there there was a there's a particular thing that's happening that that I haven't really told anybody. And I told him. Mm-hmm. And so I talked to him a little bit about it. And then I went for a run. And first of all, my my running time, normally my mile time is like at 11, 12, like sometimes I can get it to 10. Like I'm not fast at all, mm-hmm. but I was running at like eight and a half, like wow. miles. <laughs> I was running super fast and I was literally crying the whole time, like just crying. Like, and it just was the most like cathartic run I've ever had in my life. Like wow. I was obviously like bottling all of this up. I obviously yeah. was like not dealing with things I you know what I mean and like to tell to mm-hmm. like know that there was somebody else in the world that like knew now mm. and like to kind of let that that barrier down and then to go running which we've talked about before is like like running is like me time like that's I can do whatever I want like, yeah and so like to just have it like right after I think it just like came out of me and there was no and I'm not a super like weepy person Mm-hmm. And so it was really like, what's going on? But I was like, whatever, like, I'm just going to like run through this. And it was like, honestly, when I like finished my run, I was like, oh, like I just felt so like lighter, like so like lifted and so like, yeah, like it was just super like cathartic, like to just like run it out. And I feel like I, I've been running for a long time. I've there's been times when I I've been really good at running. I feel like I'm not at one of those points right now. Um, mm-hmm. But uh yeah, it was like one of the first runs I feel like I've ever had that I was like, man, I really needed this run. Like super like cathartic and super uh, healing and yeah. um, just kind of like working through things. So, yeah. Wow. So I just I yeah, it was it was really it was really weird. Like it was a weird feeling for me. It's not something that that I'm I'm used to doing. Like I said, I'm not really a crier. Um, mm. But yeah, it was just it was really good. It was really, really good. So. That was my run. Not to like be a bummer, but like no, it was that's good. great. It was really good. Yeah. And what what's yours? Oh, um, okay. So mine is a future run. Okay. I have not been running because it has been just snowing and cold, and I hate running in the cold like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's gonna be sixty five degrees next week. 
Oh, and I'm so here happy. now. That's the perfect running. <laughs> I perfect know. Perfect running weather. So I am like mentally hyping myself up to do <laughs> like a long run. Like I'm going to take like my whole morning. Mm-hmm. I'm going to drive somewhere I don't normally run. Good. And I'm going to try to do like six miles. And I don't have to run the whole thing. I'm going to allow myself to walk if I need to because I haven't been running a lot. And I and I know, like, I don't want to push myself to a point of, like, getting injured or something like that. I'm getting mm-hmm, older. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to be careful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not a spring chicken anymore. Um, right. <laughs> but I, I, just, I just want that feeling that I used to be able to get when I would do, like, one of those longer runs and just kind mm-hmm. of, like, have that, like, you know, just that that moment where like your blood is pumping and you're 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 awake and you feel alive and you feel, you know, like that runner's high. And just like I I just I want to find that again because it's been missing from my life. The winters here are awful. And when you can't mm-hmm. go anywhere, like you don't get that little break of like taking a weekend in Florida or whatever, you know, right. like that you really need to get through the kind of like darkness of these winters here. It, mm-hmm. it's, it does something to you mentally. I mean, not to mention everything else with 2020. But I just feel like being stuck inside, not breathing fresh air, like not getting that like that feeling of like the wind in your face. You know, I just feel like I, um, I'm really looking forward to it. So I'm going to plan my whole day around it. And I mean, I've been exercising. I've been on the Peloton or whatever, but it's just not the same. Mm-hmm. Like nothing's nope. the same as like just getting outside and getting that long run in. So I am going to block everything else out. I'm not going to give myself anything else to do except for that that day mm-hmm. and I'm just going to I'm going to take the time to do it. So that's my Yay. that's my future run and I'll let you know Good. how it goes. Good. Love it. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for listening everybody. We really appreciate it. Please follow us online. Mm-hmm. Follow our Instagram. Give us a review. Um yep. but when you do, please know that I do believe in UFOs. Um, <laughs> you can send really us like do. messages too like you can like yeah. if you want to do a longer thing than just like what the review like count is like send us a message on instagram or facebook or we have an email address like we'd love to hear from you guys the like, fucked up thing about me is is that it actually was a good review i'm just so sensitive to criticism <laughs> that i'm like <laughs> i also yeah. just felt like it was wrong okay Aww. i'm gonna stop it's okay. Yes. Okay. Please rate, listen, and subscribe. Like, yes. And share. <laughs> Tell us all the things. But you can reach out to us in many yes. ways. Yes. And uh, the Patreon is patreon.com slash P-S-A-F-O-T. That's right. And I think that's all the stuff. I think that's it. Check us out on our website, info at peculiarstories.com. That's our email, not our website. Has our website <laughs> in the it. info part. <laughs> And, and there yeah. you go. You got there it. There you go. Yeah. But most importantly, follow us on Instagram and give us a five star rating because we work really hard and like mm-hmm. I feel like we deserve it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that a you're not a Leo, but is that a Leo thing? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I'm an Aries. Oh, I don't know anything about Aries. We just like but. to be first and best. Well, yeah, then you're such an Aries. Got it. I know. (laughs) All right, guys, have a great day, night, week, whatever it is. Okay. And we'll see you soon. Or talk to you soon. You have to say the thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just remember, it's far better to be peculiar than to be boring. Woohoo! Yeah.
Looking for your next great audiobook? Try Audible for free for 30 days. With thousands of titles to choose from, Audible has something for everyone. I recently listened to Intimations by Zadie Smith on Audible and loved it. The writing is beautiful and the author's narration was fantastic. Visit audibletrial.com slash peculiar to start your free trial today.